I was going to bring some sweaty balls. What? You didn't bring sweaty balls? <laughs> What's wrong with you, Carlene? <laughs> I was. Oh my gosh. All right. So it's been a couple of weeks and we did our last episode. Oh wait, should we tell everybody who we are? Oh, hi Alma. <laughs> hi Carlene. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for joining us on this episode of Tipsy Tales. We're here. Hello again. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, well, you I know said, what? We didn't get to be goofy last time, so yeah, it's all coming out. We're going to make up for it. And also, um, instead of drinking wine, we are drinking micheladas. 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 Which is basically a Mexican Bloody Mary. <laughs> That's delicious. what I call it. Anyway, so we didn't really get to talk about on the last episode that we had gone up to Jerome. We did talk about how we had gone to the location where you thought Jesse Shockley right. might be. Right. But we didn't talk about the fact that we just took a kept quick, driving. Yeah, we kept driving all the way up to Jerome and we spent the day up there. So it was pretty cool. It was cool. so fun. Yeah, it was. From beginning to end. It really was. It was a great day. Uh, I think people expect me to immediately, like when I go into places like that, to immediately feel... All the creepy stuff. Yeah. But that didn't happen. Right. I mean, I felt energy, but I think I was feeling a lot of everybody's energies. Well, it's a busy town. Yeah. A lot of uh, tourists. Yeah. But we did have that one experience with my throat. Right. Also in Haunted Hamburger, you got a little oh, yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. We had we went to Haunted Hamburger. It was delicious. Oh, delicious. My I kept telling my kids about it. Did I just kind of burp? I didn't hear it. Okay. <laughs> I don't burp, but it's the beer. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna be so rude. (laughs) Pull my finger. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was a really good time, though. Yeah, I guess I did have. And then there was that that couple that was sitting that when we went up to the asylum. Oh, yeah. That couple that was sitting there. Oh, yeah. I would have read that check, man. Yeah. I wish I would have. Oh, yeah. When we walked into the downstairs. Okay. Yeah. I remember she was yeah. talking about how she has experiences. and We were trying to figure out where to interject there. And then I was like, okay, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like jumping into somebody else's conversation. Oh, I have but, no problem yeah. doing that. <laughs> Colleen doesn't have an issue with that. <laughs> She's like, I just heard you talking about such and such a thing. Things happen for a reason. People are in your life for a reason. Exactly. Now I'm in your life. Didn't you give her a card? I did. Oh. Told her about our tipsy tales. So, hi, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to call Carleen. Yeah, it was pretty nice. I didn't realize there were so many brothels in Jerome. I had no idea. Like every... It was like a... A row. The red light district or something. Well, I guess because of the miners and stuff like that. It kept their spirits up. They also have a a haunted tour. We were kind of (laughs) contemplating doing that, but it was later in the day. We so could have tagged along quietly. Right. Because they're just just walking down the street, right? (laughs) (laughs) I did try to take a listen. I just wanted to see how realistic they are. Right. That's that's more my curiosity. They definitely get off on scaring people. Think so? Yeah. Yeah. When I went outside, I could hear him saying stuff. Well, a lot of haunted tours are like that. Oh, yeah. That's how they get people. Right. I mean, what are they going to say? When Casper the Friendly Ghost gives you a kiss on your cheek, you'll feel a 
tickle. Right. I mean, that's not going to, people don't, people love scary. We do. <laughs> I know. That's why we probably It's like, have I just want to get close enough to scary, but not too close. Right. I mean, even when I do the research on, on the paranormal side of things, I notice that people, my clients, I always tell them how they go to, human beings go to the negative first. So like if you hear a thunk at night, you're going to go, oh, there's a bad ghost here, something bad's here, instead of, oh, the angels are trying to get my attention. Right. But it's more thrilling to think that there's something scary yeah something scary and unknown right well and a lot of i think a lot of like because it became a fad to have like all these medium shows and ghost shows and whatever and they kind of play that up too yeah paranormal activity yeah so anyway i don't know how we got on that oh but i will tell you something because this is kind of cool it's all along the teaching thing Mm -hmm. somehow some way we'll get to our story right somehow (laughs) it's okay (laughs) <laughs> but, I love this stuff. Uh, so I've, with Allie being home from school and, you know, my kids are adults now, so it's kind of neat to be able to show them in the world how spiritually things work. I don't know how else to say this. Like the universe comes back and helps us. Right. So, you know, I don't tell people what to believe. I don't tell them I get my gifts and I talk to God, who I call God, but I don't label him for other people. You call him whatever you want. I have my oldest son says universe. I have some people that say creator. My daughter says God and Jesus. You know, it's just, you got to figure it out for yourself. It's your journey. I always say, if you want to call him Santa Claus, call him Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) There's a higher power. It is higher. Anyway, Allie had something not very nice happened to her so she was she has to go back to school in tucson okay and she trusted somebody who said that they were going to go get a place with her in tucson and things just didn't happen the way they were supposed to and that friend just decided it wasn't going to work out for her so anyway long story short at the very last minute She's having to scramble. Allie's having to figure out where she's going to live. And in the fall, she was offered an RA position because that's what she was doing. She worked really hard for it. And she made sure with that person, before I decline, I want to make sure we're doing this. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, so serious? uh, Free room and board, you know, food card, everything down the drain. No, they don't listen to us. Nope, they don't. So I stepped back and then all this happened. So now we're scrambling. And so I told Allie, after I got done being frustrated, I woke up the next morning and was like, hold on, Allie, everything happens for a reason. Not one thing in life is by accident. So we just need to take a break, breathe, regroup, and ask the universe for help. So we had to go to Tucson to look for a place to live. So I told her, I said, before you go to bed tonight, I'm a teacher about law of attraction, which... They've been learning that their whole life, but this is like firsthand lesson right now. So I told her, I said, before you go to bed tonight, you send out what you want, what you need, ask them to help you. And then I I did the same. And then I talked to spirit in the shower. So that day I was talking to them in the shower and telling them like, hey, it would be awesome 
if a RA position opened up, but you know, I get it. That probably isn't going to happen, but it would be awesome. But you know, I trust you guys. Something will happen. So we're, we went to the first and second places and I was like, oh no, my daughter cannot live here alone in these neighborhoods. They're just too shady. Right. So then she's like, well, there's girl text me and it's a really nice place and it's $400 a month, 450. And I'm like, it's probably too good to be true. She's like, yeah, it probably is. I'm like, Facebook or Messenger or anyway, and we'll see. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Well, Allie started talking like it had already happened. Like the place was already hers. And I was like, oh my gosh, Allie, it's yours. You're going to, it's going to all work out. Right. So we went and looked at another place that was so nice. I want to go to college. And then uh, when we were coming back, <laughs> I'm not kidding. This pool. You're like, I'm going to college now. Just so I can live in this residential apartment complex. So this girl calls her back and everything fell into place for this housing for her. And it is like right by the college, kind of right by everything. And so it was just, it was too good to be true, but it was true. Right. (laughs) So we were like, oh my gosh, we put it out there. And as we're... Talking to this girl, Allie gets a text message from her boss saying, hey, there's a RA opening. Oh, wow. Would you want to take it? And so now the universe was like, well, you asked for both. So here you go. What are you going to do with it? So I told Allie, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe we put both things out there and the universe gave you both. Right. And now they're just trying to figure out how you're going to respond. So she was really confused. So I said, "Okay, now you say which one is for my greater good. Show me which one I'm supposed to take. And then, you know, if it all falls into place for this one, then it's meant to be. Right. And if it, it's a little harder, more work, then I'm not supposed to take it. So what did what did she end up doing? It looks like the residential housing one is the one the RA thing, she had lived in the dorms for the first two years. This is her third year. And last year it just seemed like she was twenty four hours working, never right. getting a day off. So she was getting really exhausted and frustrated with it. Even though at the same time she loved it. Like, she really appreciated it. She loved everybody in the dorm. She loved her job. But, I mean, it's hard when you don't even get... Like, she'd be in the shower and... Getting... Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, no. So she You was, don't even get a break. No. No break, no day off, nothing. Because she's also a desk assistant. So she was getting double whammy. And she loves it, And but she did need a break. So I had explained that to her. I'm like, I remember you being really homesick. And a lot of it was because... The workload, your right. schoolwork, being an RA. And I mean, granted, you are making, you're definitely earning your keep. That's super cool. She got a great deal and I'm yes. really proud of her. Aww. So everything happens for a reason. I believe that. I totally believe that. Yeah. So see, I, just as, as my kids get those lessons, I get those same lessons for my clients. That's what you get. That's what you get when you go to Carlene. <laughs> I feel like I just did an infomercial. I, I. <laughs> For $19.99. That's hilarious. You want to go first? Want me to go first? Okay, I'll I'll go first. Okay. I've only gone first once before. (laughs) So I get a little nervous. We're not even doing shots or anything. It's the beer. (laughs) And I'm, because it's real lemony and salty, so I have to keep like 
way to like lick <laughs> the salt off my because I don't want to be like. Oh, I don't well, even care. I just did it. So. Oh, I'm doing it. Oh, I just <laughs> smacked. I so sorry. Edit. <laughs> oh, I did want to mention right away. Um, we just changed the email address from that old funky email. That was really hard for me to say every single time. So now, like, it's straightforward. It's Tipsy Tales Podcast at yahoo.com. So if you guys have anything that you guys want us to um, talk about on the show, like you have an interesting story, or you even want to share, like, your own paranormal or true crime personal story, and you wouldn't mind us reading it on the podcast, send it over. Tipsy Tales Podcast at yahoo.com. Anyways, so your story. Ta-da. Ta-da. Oh, what? Okay. Want me to play the? Oh yeah. Play the audio. Okay, audio. Okay. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. <laughs> That's pretty ominous. <laughs> and that was a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> Just trying to put that recording on there. But kids used to jump rope to that. Right. To be. They were mean at first when they made that up. Anyway, I'm doing mine on Lizzie Borden. Well, the Borden house, but you can't do the Borden house without telling you the Lizzie Borden story. So right. mine's kind of like true crime and paranormal. Cool. All right. I just sounded like Scooby-Doo. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for you to throw me a Scooby stack. <laughs> well, if I could do if I could... Uh, if I could do a sound like them, I would. <laughs> I'm not that good. Okay, I'm kind of Wikipediaing it. I'm doing an Alma. Yeah, you're pulling an Alma. <laughs> Eva's not out yet. That so. that first episode that we did together was total Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> but it's mainly just because there there are some really cool tidbits, so I might just skip through. But anyway, okay, so Lizzie Andrew Borden, that was her middle name. Oh, really? Yeah, I think her dad or somebody has that name, too. Andrew? Lizzie Andrew Borden? That's bizarre. Well, story's bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) So she was born July 19th, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts. This place looks beautiful. Even their house, it's like a three-story, dark green it's like a bed and breakfast now. It's a gorgeous place. Uh, she was, her parents were Sarah Anthony. How weird that these women have, I wonder if that was like part of the tradition. Like they have, because the mom's name, Sarah Anthony Morse. The dad is Andrew Jackson Borden. Wow. They're still in that town just tons of Bordens. I hear that they all are pretty wealthy. The Borden family been way back in the 1800s. They were wealthy people. And Lizzie's dad, what's his name? Andrew. He lived very frugal. So even though they had money, they didn't live like they had money. So some say that kind of caused issues with the, anyway, we'll see if they talk about it on here. Lizzie's father, Andrew, grew up in very modest surroundings and struggled financially as a young man. That's interesting because I heard that his dad was a fisherman. His dad did a lot of different things. And then he became like that's how he got his wealth was he ended up becoming kind of well to do whatever this is saying different so okay. what's well, wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, all the stories have so many different versions. Right. Too. No, they do. Lizzie's father, Andrew, grew up in a very modest surround uh, and struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents. Oh, so that okay. makes sense yeah. to what I was saying. Yeah, people, I do know the story. I did a lot of research on <laughs> some of this. I didn't actually go through the week because I usually will write my stories right. out and then go off. She hand writes her whole story. <laughs> I do. She does. But this time I was like, there's a, I wanted, I was just going to wing it. And then I started reading this and there was some interesting stuff. So I was just going to wing it and read it. All right. So now you all know the truth. We're real. <laughs> we're <And> lazy. We're <laughs> lazy. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> we're busy. We are busy. Super busy. I had a busy week with all the figuring out Allie's stuff and stuff going on. I like being busy. Yep. Like busy, busy overboard every day. Yep. Despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents, he eventually prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets. Yeah, I did see that he actually would make his own caskets. Really? Yeah. Even the dog agrees. Yep. <laughs> and went on to become a successful property developer. Yeah, he actually, I think that's where he got a lot of his money was like, and he became involved with real estate. Interesting. I'm telling you, that's the way A real estate mogul. <laughs> <laughs> he directed several textile mills, including the Globe Yarn Mill Company, Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufacturer Company. Oh, well. He also owned a considerable amount of commercial property and was both president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. So this is her dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was involved in a lot of stuff. So he struggled when he was younger, but apparently he was doing pretty well. But he struggled coming from an influential wealthy family. family. I don't know. It's kind of contradicting, isn't yeah. it? Anyway, he lived very frugal. So like now, obviously, there's toilets in the house. Right. But back then, they didn't actually have working toilets, but they had what they used back then as toilets. They Outhouse? had those in the... No. They had like... Like a commode? Yeah. yeah and, and they, they had, had them in the basement, but those weren't, they didn't actually use those. They had to use like the basin type thing. Oh, a piss pot. Yeah, piss pot. And then to take a bath, they actually used, you know, the basin thing. Right. To, that was how they took a bath. He didn't like, you know, you had to heat up all your water and all of that. That saying, you don't even have a pot to piss in. Yeah. yeah. Well, he literally lived like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he did have a pot to piss in. But he didn't. Hey, that's how wealthy people are. There's so many that are, listen, poor people are the best tippers. No offense, wealthy people. But, but they are. There are some wealthy people that aren't the most generous with tipping or with being giving. Okay, Borden and her older sister, Emma Borden, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congressional Church. As a young woman, she was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants 
this is going to be, just remember this stuff. That, that's why I'm reading it, because right. it does have something to do with what happened. Because it's, I don't know. Just remember, she was this sweet little Sunday school teacher. The mom or this is Lizzie? Lizzie and her sister. Okay. And I believe one of them, I'm just going to jump in, Her their biological mom had died. They also had a sister, I think her name was... Alice or something like that, but she died. Alice at like, Jeremiah Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alice James, but she died as a baby at like two years old of like fluid on the oh, brain or something. something. Yeah, it's sad. But the mom also died, and so one of whoever's older. Oh, Emma. So Emma kind of was like the mother figure for Lizzie. Okay, I believe that's how it goes, and then. The dad ends up remarrying, and there's a stepmom in the picture. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. I thought those were both her parents' her parents. Her biological oh, parents, yeah. but no. Okay. Uh, so that kind of like, the, this whole story is really mysterious. Like, she just snaps one day. Well, I'm just going to skip to it because... Well, was there anything leading up to it that might... Well, yeah, there's... Let me just read this. Okay. Three years after the death of Lizzie Borden's mother, Sarah, Andrew married Abby Gray. Lizzie stated that she called her stepmother, Mrs. Borden, and demurred on whether they had a cordial relationship she re- she believed that abby had married her father for wealth bridget sullivan who they called maggie the borden's 25 year old living maid remember that okay 25 year old living maid <laughs> who had immigrated to the u.s from ireland testified that lizzie and emma rarely ate meals with their parents in 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet, believing they were attracting local children to hunt them. Well, that just gave me goosebumps. Uh, yeah, and you know what's weird? When I was watching videos of people, they were saying that Lizzie was the one that was chopping off the heads of the pigeons. But this says her dad was, right? right? Andrew. Right. That, yeah. That's, Wait, why, that's, that's why, why I hesitated Wait, yeah. when I was reading it. Because I was like, wait, did that say Andrew? I don't have my glasses on. <laughs> it did. Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it had been commonly recounted. But anyway, that's why I'm reading it so hesitant, because that's what people would say, was that Lizzie was the one that was killing them. But So the it, pigeons. Yeah. So, somebody, but, so but, chopping off, hacking off their heads? Yeah. yeah. So I just imagine somebody just going into the barn and just like willy nilly like, uh, or they were actually grabbing pigeons and like holding them on the chopping the head off. And that's that's why she she kept the pigeons like pets, it sounds like. And then she had to keep going in and counting them to make sure her dad wasn't taking one and chopping off. What? Like, can you imagine being Wait, just like a little girl? That that gives it a whole other like dimension, right? That they're she thinks of them as pets. So wow. that that sounds sadistic. Like he was doing it to punish her, right? Oh no! I, it sounds like he did a lot of weird kind of things. Like he certainly wasn't father of the year. Yeah, he was. He was a different kind of character. Yeah. Um, and it it had been commonly recounted that she had 
<laughs> We're a pair here. Okay, so I'm over here drinking this. And my husband rimmed, like, very heavily rimmed the, the glass with tahin. So, like, every time I take a drink, I have to go, like, off the microphone because it's, like, all over my lips. And it's very, very, like, I mean, if anybody's ever had tahin, but it's salty. So I'm like, yeah, okay. And she's over here trying to burp off <laughs> very demurely. I just don't want the microphone to catch it. Uh, it was my throat talking. Yes. Okay, sorry. I brought once in on the action. Okay, so he did weird things. Yeah. Yeah. She was upset over his killing of them through the validity. There you go. Now my eyes are getting blurry. Of this has been disputed. Oh, the the validity of this has been disputed. Okay. Okay, That makes more sense. A family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended, oh, is that what they're calling it? Extended vacations. Really? (laughs) Yeah. In New Bedford after returning to Fall River a week before the murders. Oh, so they did that a week before the murders. Interesting. Lizzie chose to... (laughs) That's what we should start playing. (laughs) <laughs> so we would probably have to get in trouble for that. <laughs> Just let the dogs bark like that. Yeah. That sounds mean. That's that's Poseidon. Cujo. Yeah, he's kind of Cujo. <laughs> All right, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. I don't blame her. Dad sounds Cuckoo? creepy. Well, yeah. Chopping off pigeons' heads that were basically pets to her. Yeah. Like, that, that just is really gonna fuck with her head. That would fuck with my head. <laughs> it is kind of fucking with yeah. my head right now. Tension had been growing within the family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate. I don't even know if I want to hear this. To various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters, oh, Lizzie and her sister demanded and received a rental property? The home they had lived in until their mother died. I heard they didn't get it, that he wouldn't give them property, but this says he did. Granted then? I guess. Oh, which they purchased from their father for one dollar. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'd be okay with that. Uh, A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for five thousand. What? (laughs) Equivalent to one hundred thirty-nine thousand in twenty eighteen. Okay. What the? This family is bizarre. The night before the murders, John Morse, the brother of Lizzie's and Emma's deceased mother. So it's our Uncle John. Okay, remember Uncle John visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. Some writers have speculated that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. Oh, I didn't that either. This is new. A family friend later speculated that mutton. Oh, yeah. They only ate mutton. No you know chicken, no beef, just no. mutton. 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 How's the mutton? You want to eat all mutton your balls? Mutton? <laughs> oh, 
Mm, shreddy mutton balls? Pass mm. <laughs> over the shreddy mutton balls. Mutton is such an ugly word. Like, that no doesn't even sound appetizing. No. Mutton. It's it's an old sheep, right? Well, I, I, I just, I know it's an animal. It's sheep. Should I find out? No, it's sheep. Is it? Yeah. <gasps> <gasps> it's goat. goat. Goat meat. What? Look. Look. We need to put that online. Uh, we'll share that with you people. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Oh, my God. Okay, so oh they got God. sick from eating some bad mutton. On... Oh, left on the stove for after, for use in meals over several days. Ew. Wait a minute. Oh. So wait, they just left it there and then apparently. you just... Apparently. 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 Did they have... I mean, what year was this again? 18 something. Maybe the they had a freezer box. I mean, they I mean, they were wealthy. I mean, there yeah, was... Yeah, but he... I mean, he. they had toilets too, right. but he wouldn't... <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk about about the murders now. All right, so August 4th, 1892 is when the murders happened. And there's pictures. Ooh, I like pictures. In the the actual house, like the bed and breakfast, they have pictures, these pictures, and it's the pictures. Oh, wait. Yeah. No, it's the pictures of the dad and the mom after they had been axed to death. Ah. Better ax somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me no questions. Sorry, that's the beer talking. Okay. John Morris arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. That sounds right. See, you hear all these conflicting stories. That's why I like to write mine. And I just make up my own bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) After breakfast the next morning, at which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie... Morris and the Borden's maid, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, were present. Andrew and Morris went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. How do do people know all this? I know. The witnesses. (laughs) Well, they're still Borden's, so I guess the story was just... So this is after they'd all been sick. Yeah, now they're all better. I guess they've forgiven the mutton. (laughs) I never eat mutton again. Mm-mm. Well, of course, uh, the stepmom and the dad never eat mutton again. Well, <laughs> God, that was disgusting. They did not. All right. Morris left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen. Buy a pair of oxen. That's and just such an 1800s thing to do, right? <laughs> I guess. Excuse me, I have to go buy a pair of oxen. (laughs) It's 8.48 in the morning. I need to go buy some oxen. I'm going to be late for my oxen appointment. (laughs) Make sure you document that. Document that it's 8.48. And visit his niece in Fall River, planning planning to return to the Borden home for lunch. Oh, at noon. So, okay, so take note. He's out of the house. Okay. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m. Although cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 to make bed. Okay. All right. I should wrote my own. (laughs) (laughs) According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. Okay. 
She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear. I'm not kidding. They have a replica of the skulls. Oh, my God. Yeah, because evidently, before they buried them, they cut their heads off. <laughs> so Didn't, they could, didn't she already do that? We Basically, she did. But they did it so that they could have their skulls, mm-hmm. I guess, to use them in court. Okay. But there's some replicas of their skulls. There's photos or something. Right. And the damage, oh, it hurts my head just thinking about it. Savage. Like, uh, yeah, it's horrific. Like, listen, whoever did it was really angry and strong to take as many whacks as they did. <laughs> so- <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but. <laughs> Whack them. All right, she was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her. So this, the little rhyme that the kids made up, she didn't whack her family 40 and 41 times. It was 18 times oh. for the stepmom. Okay. I mean, well, that's, that's better. better. A little. <laughs> but honestly, <laughs> when I started doing this story, I was like, it wasn't her. You I don't, don't think, think so? she did it. No. I think it was the brother, the uncle. Really? Yeah. yeah that's who I thought. You know. If you saw a picture of him, he's pretty creepy looking in his own right. The uncle? Yeah. He's got killer eyes. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start singing an 80s song there. Oh, I was just singing the same thing. I couldn't think of what it was. What is it? I don't know. I I want to say the video. I don't know. I see. Because the video, I think we're going to look it up and play it. Yeah, we are. When Andrew returned... Uh, at around 10.30, his key failed to open the door, so he knocked for attention. Sullivan went to unlock the door, finding it jammed. That makes it sound eerie. <laughs> uh, uttering an ex- a cuss word. <laughs> uttering a cuss word. Let me just say well, that cleans it up. Yeah. yeah, let's see. Finding it jammed, she uttered, I'll just fuck! That's probably what she said. Right. <laughs> That's what I would Probably said something like, what in tarnation? <laughs> <laughs> she said, motherfucker. <laughs> Who locked me to ask somebody? <laughs> Not ready to ask somebody. <laughs> I love it. That was a good one. That was. A good, I think Eva's coming out. Eva is here. <laughs> we need Charlene. <laughs> oh, Charlene. <laughs> Charlene, Charlene, you come. My dad would call you Charlene. I get called Charlene all the time. Charlene, Charlene. She would let it later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. Interesting. Like Lizzie locked her out. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father 
father had asked her where Abby was, and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Lizzie stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he laid down on the sofa for a nap. Well, it's going to be a long nap on that sofa. <laughs> An anomaly contradicted by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew wearing his boots. Interesting. So she said that she removed his boots, but he still has his boots on. Yeah. Wow. That's thick. So she can't keep her story straight? Evidently. Fire. Oh, little Lizzie. And I'm the one that had faith in you. Oh, she then informed Bridget of a department store sale and permitted her to go. But Bridget felt unwell and went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. A little bit of that uh, mutton hangover. Yeah. Yeah. So little old Maggie the maid had to go to her. Her bedroom was on the third floor. Did I already say that? Mm -mm. Yeah. So the maid... Slept on the very top floor. From what I understand, Morris, John, was sleeping in the room next to her. And then everybody else's rooms were, I don't know, scattered throughout the house. But the mom, stepmom, was right below the maid's quarters. Okay. Yeah. So some people are like, well, wouldn't they hear a thunk? But no, because it sounds like the maid. This is telling things. It's interesting because it's saying that the maid went to sleep after the mom was already killed. Right. Because now the dad comes home. They're kicking off his boots, but the mom was already murdered. Interesting. But she would have been visible to anybody on the second floor. (laughs) It's all contradicting. Well, okay. So the maid's on the third floor, so she doesn't see anybody. Right. And Andrew, on the Andrew's floor. on the first floor. Okay, so maybe. Whatever. <laughs> All those multiple see. levels. I'm getting bored already. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you do that. <laughs> Sullivan, testifi- <clears throat> Sullivan testified that she was in her third floor room resting and cleaning windows. Well, what? what which Wait. was it? Was she resting or cleaning windows? Maybe she's a good multitasker. <laughs> she has she's long la- lawn. She's laying down and she's cleaning the window. With- <laughs> or maybe that's her resting state. Is cleaning windows. <laughs> there you go. You know, being a mom, that's kind of our resting state doing dishes. Yeah. That's our rac- relaxation time, right? Holding. Holding clothes. This is really boring me, I guess. I think it's the beer. My own voice is boring me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, She was resting and cleaning. Oh, Oh, resting resting from cleaning windows. Oh. That makes sense. God, Carlene, learn how to read your shit. (laughs) See, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to write my own stuff out. All right. That makes more sense. But how exhausting can cleaning windows... Well, they do have a lot of windows in this house. Oh, do they? Yeah. It was window day. It was... I guess. How did they get the top floor back then? No way they had a ladder that reached that. No. I think of the weirdest shit. Maybe she was cleaning it from the inside. Oh, yeah, probably. There you go, yawning again. I don't know. Spirit could be Uh talking. Maybe because somebody was taking a nap. Oh, my God. The maid. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be freaky, wouldn't it? 
All right. When just before 11.10 a.m., she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. (laughs) Somebody came in and killed him. Why was she... would you yell that? Oh, I'd just be I'd like hysterically. I'd like be screaming hysterically yeah. like, whoa. I don't know that I'd be like, father's dead. Somebody <laughs> killed him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Andrew was slumped. Oh, and this is the picture that you can see with him. Andrew was slumped on the couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with the hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split Uh, cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked. His still bleeding wounds suggested a very recent attack. Detectives estimated his death to have occurred approximately 11 a.m. Now, what I do know is, I'll probably read this, but when they were investigating, the maid states that when Lizzie found her dad and was like, my father, and then the maid came running down, Right. Lizzie was wearing a blue dress and there was no blood on it. What? Yeah, yeah and they have the, the blue, blue dress, dress that they used why for the trial. Why is it always trial. a blue dress? Huh? <laughs> Who has a blue dress? I said, why is it always a blue dress? Oh, I don't know. Hides the blood. So there was nothing on there? No, no there was no blood. So if she killed her dad, and those dresses, you usually needed help to get in and out of. Right. And it, they're, they take a long time. You have to put, have the court. Yeah, so it's not like right. she just ran upstairs, changed her clothes, and ran no. back downstairs. No. no. So okay. that's, that's one of, one of the reasons why I'm like, mm, I don't think, I don't know. I just don't think she did it. I feel bad for her. If she didn't do it, the harassment and shit that she went through. Well, they're making up nursery rhymes and everything. Yeah. Her house, her and her sister moved out after the parents died and the trial and everything. They used their inher- their money that they got after the dad died. They were rich. Right. And, and so, so they, they used that money and bought a big house in the same town, but like a few blocks down. And kids would egg it and people would yell things and yeah a door ring the bell or whatever knock on the door well she'd be a pariah after that right yeah Yeah, basically i'd i'd move across the country i wouldn't even live in the same place no i'd be like peace out yep going to california i'm out of here (laughs) i got daddy's money Exactly. I mean, don't let it be in vain. But no, I mean, that's a tough cookie to just put up with all that. Right. But then if she did it, then it was warranted. Yeah. But well, here, we'll we'll read about the investigation real quick. Is this taking a long time? No, you're fine. Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or scraping noise or distress call before entering the house. But two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing and entered the house, not realizing that anything was wrong. You know what, though? What if you're... You're in shock and you're upset. You might say contradicting things. Or if you're lying. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can't keep your story straight. 
I don't know if if she was like a sociopath or a psychopath. Like yeah. they they keep their stories pretty straight because they believe what they're saying. Right. That's true. That's crazy. When asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit the sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs. Their eyes, their eyes level with the floor when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Borden reported that they disliked her attitude. Okay. Some said she was too calm and poised. Despite her attitude and changing alibis, nobody bothered to check. Oh, nobody bothered to check her for blood stains. Police did search her room but it was a it was like a brush over you know they didn't do a thorough inspection at the trial they admitted to not doing a proper search because borden was not feeling well they were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence that's interesting Hmm. Well, I wonder if they're going to talk about the dress. Blue dress with no blood stains on it. Yeah, because one theory is that Lizzie, can't say it because it might be really inappropriate. All right. Well, Lizzie was. Wait, we're very inappropriate. <laughs> so just say it. Lizzie is a Lizzie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie's I was a Lizzie. I'm say it in a much more ta- uh, tactful <laughs> way. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> we she, learned that. But it sounded too good. Lizzie is a Leslie. <laughs> anyway, this she had the hots for, <laughs> for the maid. She yeah, had the hots for the maid. Oh, because so, they, they say that there was this famous actress who was really beautiful, and Lizzie had the hots for her. Right. And she then, had a crush on her. Right. Then there was that. Lizzie and the maid were having but they also said that there was a possibility that Andrew the dad and the maid were having a thing go so everybody has their gossip interesting but they think that maybe everybody was getting a piece of the maid maid gets around (laughs) but anyway she she's the one that said that Lizzie did have the blue dress on and there was nothing so they kind of alibied each other because with Lizzie not saying anything about the maid it kind of was like kept her out of it okay so but if they were in on it together that would mean because they did say there was another dress that had been burned like that day okay and so the theory is she had to have a second person so if it was that woman that they were maybe in cahoots right and then she like helped her get in and out of the dress quickly and you know Maybe she told her she'd take care of her for the rest of her life. Yeah. Like she was going to inherit all the money. Right. Yeah. And then other th- people are like, well, where was the little sister? Where was... The big sister? The, yeah. yeah. The big... Where? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where was, was she? she? I don't know. Maybe they'll say on here because this seems to have a lot of information that I didn't <laughs> have. All right. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. This is really sick, but when you go in for the bed and breakfast, they have on the couch, they have an axe laying on the couch. Nice. Yeah. 
That's a nice touch. Pretty disgusting. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the blotted tools, on the other tools, (laughs) (laughs) appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look like it had been in the basement for some time. Okay. However... None of these tools were removed from the house because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders and the family's milk and Andrew's and Abby's stomachs. What? Their stomachs were removed during autopsies performed in the Borden dining room? What? Where they were tested for poison, none was found. Okay. God, well, they eliminated that. Really? It's disgusting. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't live in those times. Just think about like when you buy an antique table, you never know if there was a casket sitting on that table or an autopsy, or maybe somebody even gave birth on that table. I'll take give birth. <laughs> But cut open somebody's intestines, lay them on top, slash open their brain, like that one story you did. Wasn't that, didn't you do that story where they like had a, they wanted to see inside their brain? Or did I do that story? You did that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of us did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. You're like, I don't know. It was a true crime. I have no (laughs) idea. I'm all confused here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice. Alice Russell. I haven't even heard about her. Alice. Alice. She decided to stay with them. Oh, my God. Before or after? Decided to stay with them the night following the murders. Okay. Well, Morris, that's uncle, spent the night in the attic guest room. Ooh. Hmm. Contrary to later accounts that he slept in the murder site guest room. What? That's gross. Why? They sound very fucked up. Okay. Police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer claimed to have seen Borden enter the cellar with Russell. Hearing, oh, oh, this must be where something gets burned carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. Oh, well, that was uneventful. <laughs> I was all excited. Right. All right. On August 5th, Morris left the house and was swarmed by hundreds of people, police, had to escort him back to the house. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, the police officer and the major visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was the suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint. Uh, red paint by any chance? (laughs) Or maybe brown paint at this point. (laughs) Maybe. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders. Interesting. 
Yeah. Well, now they talk about the inquest and, ooh, she had been prescribed morphine, regular doses of morphine to calm her her nerves. So (laughs) she had regret or she was really mourning? Appeared at the inquest hearing. Her, her request to have her family attorney present was refused under the state statute providing that the inquest might be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves. And it's po- <clears throat> every time I get to that part, have you seen that? Crazy. And it's possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was erratic and she often refused to answer a question even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, uh, such as claiming to have been in the kitchen reading a magazine with her father when her father arrived home, then claiming to have been in the dining room doing some ironing, and then claiming to have been coming down the stairs. She also claimed to have removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, despite police photo- photographs clearly clearly showing Andrew wearing his boots. That's such a big misstep, like that's a lot of missteps. But that's like how do you forget something like that? If you if you're calculating and you're how do you forget that you were going to put boots on but oops. Right. Or take the boots off, but oops, you didn't? Yeah, that's just that's You just bizarre. don't say I took his boot taking boots off are, that's a memorable thing right they are not unless that's easy. something she did every day yeah but still it's not easy right photos right <laughs> i'm starting to <laughs> get starting cheated to, starting to pretty <laughs> much think that yeah it was lizzie hey the district attorney was very aggressive and confident confrontational cheaper i cannot pronounce anything i'm never doing this again <laughs> <laughs> i quit on August 11th, Borden was served with a warrant of arrest and jail. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. You know what? I'm really surprised at kind of how fair her trial was. Right. For, for those that- times. Because I thought they were just like, you're guilty. You're a woman. I mean, we think you killed them. Nobody else. We don't think anybody else could have. Right. And, and then they just kind of make the evidence fit. But no, really, she got a really fair trial. Yeah, yeah she, she did. did. I guess it depends on where you were and like, who you, who the judge is and who, like, I guess. It, yeah. yeah. Like if you watch, what is it? Hell's. Oh, Hell's Hell on, on Wheels. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, where was I? The trial. About the trial. It was very fair. Fair. Inadmissible. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, so they're saying like Lizzie would keep her, her demeanor was really, she bit her lips. She was flushed and bent toward attorney, attorney Adams. It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who before were like supportive saying yeah she's innocent but now they're like they're uh, kind of like what i'm doing right like well maybe she isn't 
Well, that's understandable because I'm doing the very same thing. Right. Uh, the inquest, inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in Boston Globe. Wow, that's huge. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December 2nd. But... <laughs> Borden's trial took place in New York, Bedford. No, I'm sorry. In New Bedford, uh, starting on June 5th, 1893. Uh, Prosecuting attorneys, who cares? You're going to look them up. (laughs) (laughs) Was, uh, I can't pronounce this guy's name. Hosea? Josiah? I don't, H-O-S. Oh, Hosea? E-A? Hosea? Hosea? That's a Bible name, I think. Oh, yeah, but is that how they spell it? Hosea. All right. I mean, that sounds better than what I'm trying to say. Let's go with it. Okay. You're smart. You're smart. <laughs> You're smart. I'm so smart. You are so sweaty balls. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's uh, Hosea Dalton and future Supreme Court Justice William Moody. Defending were Andrew Jennings, Melvin Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another, oh my gosh, another, oh, this is why the theory that somebody had just come in the house and did it, like just a stranger, right, and did the murders because, uh... Or was it? Oh, five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time, the victim is Bertha Manchester. Wow. Mm. Who was found hacked dun, to dun, death dun, in her dun. kitchen. So is that a copycat? Or is that, that the person that killed Lizzie's parents. Right. And is she saying truth when it's like somebody, I don't know who. Interesting. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden's murders were striking and noted by jurors. You know what? I think it's somebody who they never caught. Unless I just, they're going to tell me they caught them. Right. (laughs) I'm just as surprised as all of you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Yes. However, However, Jose Correa (laughs) de Melo, I don't know how you say it, a Portuguese immigrant. Oh, so that might be Jose (laughs) Correa. Anyway, a Portuguese immigrant was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was Determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. So what he was like, I didn't do their murders. I just did. I just laid a hatchet under that right. lady. <laughs> I don't know. But, but if, if they're, they're so, so sim- sim- similar, s- similar, similar, <laughs> just do what I do. Blame it on the beer. Similar. <laughs> Boy, we've had a lot to drink tonight. A lot. Actually, well, um, well, I still have a little bit left. I had two and a half. You tall boys. <sighs> Did I smack my lips? 
All right. A prominent point of discussion in the trial or press coverage of it was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincing, convincing, convincing. God, this is too much. <laughs> was not convincingly demonstrated. I get all excited. Did you see my body just now? I was like, like yeah. give it a word. <laughs> it was three syllables. I, <laughs> I can read phonics. <laughs> demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon prosecutors argue that the killer had removed the handle because it would have covered it would have been covered with blood wasn't the the main part of the hatchet covered in blood apparently not but you, i mean with that many wax come on there's I mean, got to be blood everywhere, everywhere. and including on the per, the murder i mean is savage as it sounded oh but think of this the bordens remember how i said how they bathed right how was she gonna get all that blood off of her that's a good that's a good point sometimes i think i should be a detective (laughs) (laughs) if if a detective would like my help (laughs) hint hint there's any detectives listening just call 1-800 woody balls (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was a good one that was a good one, that was a good one. <laughs> every once in a while I'll throw them out there <laughs> we need to have video of us here because that people would stop listening <laughs> and watching alright uh, one officer testified that the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head but the other, another officer, uh, the officer, the officer. Officer, I only had one officer. I only had one this tall. <laughs> uh, officer contradicted this, though no bloody clothing was found at the at the scene. Well, because it had been incinerated. Well, that was paint. <laughs> Russell. Okay. Russell testified that on August 8th, 1892, she had witnessed Borden burn a dress in the kitchen stove, claiming it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. Liar! <laughs> During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge the claim. Lizzie Borden's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half hour. Hyman Lubinsky. Hyman. 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 That's going to be the new baby name. Hyman. 
<laughs> What's your baby's name? Hyman. His name's Hyman. And then he, you know how he's going to grow up looking. Like a Hyman? Yeah. With the, <laughs> the big, thick glasses. <laughs> tall, skinny. His name is Hyman. Wow. <gasps> like, you remember Jerry Lewis when he would play that? You know what a Hyman is, scientist? right? No, I don't. <laughs> what is it? You laugh <laughs> like a Hyman. <laughs> Are you pulling it up? For real? There's such thing as a hymen? Now it sounds funny when I'm saying it because I picture a hymen like stoner dude or something, but no. It, what is it? Is it an it's animal? No. It's like when a girl loses her virginity, the thing that gets broken is the hymen. No, it isn't. Yes. Why would you name your kid a vagina part? <laughs> That's what I said when you say It's the cherry? It's the cherry on top? Well, that? then take pride in hymen. You go, hymen. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> is that really called the hymen? Yeah, how is that one spelled? H-Y-M-A-N. Okay. How do you spell hymen? With an E. That's still weird. Yeah. No, I, I'm i not <laughs> technical at all. Like, there's the G <laughs> spot, a- there's your cherry, there's your... <laughs> Oh, I know clitoris. Your hoo-ha. Your hoo-ha. I, I do, do call it a hoo-ha. <laughs> your vajayjay. Don't, I don't get into it. Yeah. Listen, women parts are very complicated, too. There, We have a whole lot of different little... Little pieces in there? Yeah. yeah. Hymen, I did not know, was one of them. I asked if it was an animal. <laughs> <laughs> it is a species. <laughs> Oh my god, that was funny. All right, make fun of me all you want. (laughs) Hey, at least I have no problem saying. No, I don't know what what that is. (laughs) Teach me. Teach me. Mine's been gone for a while. (laughs) Maybe I just forgot its name. (laughs) My hymen has a first name. Borden would make us laugh so hard. Oh, oh damn. We're laughing and at you her know what? Experience. I haven't even gotten to the ghost part. I know. <laughs> we may not. Actually, it's, that's really easy. All right, so let's just finish this. Okay. Hyman Lebinsky. Okay. Um, the broken cherry inside Lebinsky. <laughs> testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie Borden you're not going to be able to listen without laughing (laughs) leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. and Charles Gardner confirmed the time at 11.10 a.m. Lizzie called Sullivan downstairs told her Andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Borden sent her to get the doctor. Both victims' heads had been removed. Oh, this is what I was telling you. Both victims' heads had been removed during autopsies, and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on June 5th, 1890. Oh, cut out. Upon seeing them in the courtroom. Oh, so yeah, this evidently caused a big hoopla in the courtroom and Lizzie fainted and yeah really freaked people out the jurors and everybody huh I mean the the whole bringing the heads in yeah that's okay I mean 
first of all, back then, I mean, they had like rituals for burying people. Right. So now to realize that they cut the heads off before they buried them. All right. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, who had been (laughs) appointed... Hyman and Dewey delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense as his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on June 20th, 1893. I don't know. Did that make sense? Kind of. Okay. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Borden of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was the happiest woman in the world. Okay. Because she was acquitted. The trial had been compared to the later trials of Bruno Optman. I don't know. These might be some things we have to look into. Right. Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Oh, and O.J. Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that one was a long one. Yeah. Anyway, there's a bunch of theories. There's, although acquitted at the trial, Borden remains the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murders. A writer, Victoria Lincoln, proposed in 1967 that Borden might have committed the murders while in a fatigue state. Another prominent theory suggests that she was physically and sexually abused by her father. He's not the only one to say this. I've heard. I heard this a couple times, which drove her to commit parasite. Parasite? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I never heard that before. No? Parasite? No. That's where you kill your parents, obviously. (laughs) But I mean, I've never heard it called that. All right. There is little evidence to support this, but incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at that time and the methods for collecting physical evidence would have been quite different in 1892 i'm sure yeah well i mean how do they collect it right and how do they collect it now yeah it's still he said she said she said she said he said he said okay so anyway i'm gonna skip all the rest because ghosties ghosties go see the movie they did just do a movie not too oh, long Oh, yeah, they ago. did. Yeah. Anyway, so the reason I started doing this is I was like, what am I going to do it on? And so I that I looked up haunted places, and I saw the Borden house, and I was like, huh, start reading about it. And then I started watching people's YouTube videos. I was like, that seems pretty scary, but it's not enough for me to, like, just talk about. We got to, like, you know, got to give you the whole story. But some of the ghost encounters were just like little things. And you know how I always say, like, if they're not speaking into the little, you know, the recorders, then they're probably on the other side. And some people want to believe that there's bad things there. So like right when they walk in, they're like, I I was first investigating this like um, place in Canada and every time people would walk into somewhere, they're like, oh, it's creepy in here. You can't see something that you know is there. That's creepy. Right. Anyway, so they kind of like that with the house, with the, the Borden house. <clears throat> so they would walk in and they're like, it just feels creepy in here. And then they'd go down into the basement and 
weird stuff would happen. Like there's, it's legit uncut video. And they're just standing there. This guy just kind of like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go upstairs with my buddy. And just as he's kind of filling stuff out and getting ready to go back upstairs, this metal stool, you hear it go, it just moves (laughs) by itself. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. And then there was another guy and he's like, there's evil in here. And I'm like, no, there isn't. I mean, there's not. It's just, you guys are there. You're the one that's stirring them up. So they're like, you want some attention? I'll give you some attention. I want some attention. Right. And so they're giving you attention and freaking you out. So then there was the one guy, he stayed the night, him and his buddy stayed the night at the bed and breakfast, but he videotaped. He also did the Queen Mary and overnight challenges and he videotapes them sleeping. He, he just barely goes to sleep and like you see the closet door open, you see the curtains come undone and you're like, you're seeing all this firsthand. Right. And, like, and they're passed out, right? He's sleeping. And then all of a sudden the mattress on his bed, so <laughs> I got chills, starts lifting up. Mm-mm. Yes, just the corner and like like they're trying to wake him up. Like, come on, get up, get out of my room. <laughs> and so that he finally gets up and he goes to the camera and he's like, Oh, like what was that? I heard something. And of course we can see like, no, dude, your mattress was being right. lifted up. But so then I'm sure he saw that later and was probably a little freaked out. But he thought he was just freaked out because he could hear something and got woken up by the sound right really he was being jolted all over the place it's crazy yeah that yeah. is so, so i mean, mean there's some, some crazy things but you you just don't know is it just someone being facetious that's what i felt from it right. i didn't feel yeah. like it was anything but i'm not there but i mean if it was something really bad there wouldn't be people going there and staying all the time they'd be feeling a different energy right but they're just, of course, you're afraid of something that you can't see, but it's moving stuff around you. And yeah. always that fear of the unknown. Yeah. yeah. And they play the voice box things, which one I kind of figured out it's based on a radio frequency. So after they are able to find a clear channel, like a CB radio, right? then it's like spirit uses radio. It's like if they were trying to communicate with me in my car and they right. were moving the radio knob around. So they have heard this one guy was down there with his and they were communicating with somebody. And the guy said, Lou Rock. And they were both like, what? And Lou Rock was one of the guys. Oh, really? Yeah. So then you're like, who said that? And of course, they all ask the same thing, like, who killed you? Who's here with us? And even though they answer, and they may answer kind of cryptic because they're using this device, but they're answering, they continue to ask the same questions. So Spare is just like, geez, crime mini. I already answered you. Right, right. <laughs> so like um, they were in the cemetery and they were using the box and they were asking like who murdered you are you safe where are you and they were saying things like heaven so where are you 
heaven. So I'm, I was like, so I think that kind of tells me that if they're able to communicate that way, well, that's manipulating electricity type right. things. So right. I think that they are where they're supposed to be, but they're they're interacting with people because people are in their house. So right. it's nothing mean. It's just entertainment. I Interesting. Don't think it's so anything nothing facetious. Yeah. No, I freaky things that happen. Nothing malicious. It's just I don't think so. It's playful. Oh, and down in the basement on this wall, I don't know if we can get a picture of it. If we can, I'll send it to you. But on the wall, it looks like there's a face. So it would be like looking at your wall and then standing back and going, does it look like there's a face on your wall? Right. Giant face. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. Like, nobody could have put that there. You can't draw it on there. Crazy. Oh, that's creepy. It's kind of like... That's in the basement? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know those... Um, oh, my God. I've lost my shit. What are the stones? The islands? No. Uh, in London. Is it London? Oh. The pillars? Uh-huh. Anyway, my friends sent me a picture. <laughs> or Yeah, they sent me a picture of them. Or they had them online... Anyway, I zoomed in because there is a face on one of those pillars. And I was like, oh, you're not alone. Are you talking about like Stonehenge? Stonehenge. Thank you. I could not think of. Thank you. I mess that one up all the time. But yeah, there was a face. So there's a picture of him or her next to it. And I was like, you're not alone. Do you see that face? And I mean, it's clear as day. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. I'm the one yawning. I know. Do you want to like... Sorry. <laughs> what time is it? It is 10.21. How long have we been doing this? A long time, apparently. Let me see how fast I can get through this. All right. Go. Go. <laughs> All right. So my story's on Mary Bell. Okay. Have you ever heard of her? No. Okay. So at the time, she was about 11 years old. And she killed two small boys in 1968. Oh my! At I mean, at wait, the, in 1968. 1968. Holy so like moly! Couple, well, when were you born? Because I was 72. I was 1968. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like that long ago. 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so in Newcastle upon Tyne, in the Scotswood area, so in Great Britain. Okay. Uh, Mary Bell was born in May of 1957. When her unwed, mentally unstable mother was herself a child of 17. Belle's mother, Betty, was a prostitute who was often absent from the family home, traveling to Glasgow to work. Mary was her first child born when she was 16 years old. Oh, wait. Earlier it said 17. So I guess she was 16 when she had her. Okay, wait. So the mom, Mary Belle's mom was 16. Right. Okay. She had her. It is not known who Mary's biological father was, and for most of her life, she is believed to. Um, it's believed that it's Billy Bell, and he's basically a criminal. Later arrested for armed robbery, who married Betty sometime after Mary was born. <laughs> okay, listen, Billy Bell sounds like a criminal name, but <laughs> Betty Bell. Betty Bell. Betty. Be- Betty Bell and Billy Bell. Betty Bell, my name is Betty Bell, and I'm your stripper for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so though Betty Bell, Betty Bell, would subsequently wed the baby's father, marriage did not guarantee a stable home. Mary's father was frequently, and 
according to some of the stories that I read, it's not even, they're not even sure that he's the father. Um, Mary's father was frequently out of work, occasionally in trouble with the law. Betty, for her part, frequently left her daughter with relatives or acquaintances. Um, <laughs> this sounds like some of our relatives. Yeah. Once giving the child, yeah, exactly. Once giving the child to a woman she met on the street outside That's... an abortion clinic of what? all places. The Bell Home in Newcastle in England was filthy and sparsely furnished. At school, Mary became known as a chronic liar and a disruptive pupil. On occasion, she voiced her desire to hurt people. Um, Independent accounts from family members suggest strongly that Betty had attempted to kill Mary, her own daughter. What? And make her death look accidental more than once during the first few years of her life. What? One one account even said that she like tossed tried to toss her out a window. Okay, so I usually um I don't do the whole victim thing. You can you are not a victim of your circumstances. You're a victor. Right. That's you have two choices, and I don't do well with victims. This case, she has every right to be a victim of her circumstances. And yeah, she didn't have her, a choice. They said that she had um, the whole prefrontal cortex thing that she had damage to her prefrontal cortex. I was going to joke about it yeah. earlier about the so, mom. Oh, so a, a whole other case of this. So Holy cow. It pretty much ties in where they so she really lose did. their um, I wonder empathy the and all those. That's the, the center where right. you feel those things are processed. So I wonder if the mom hurt her head too. Uh, who knows? <laughs> It sounds like the mom's home life wasn't as bad as her daughter's, which she made her daughter's home life. It sounds like she had a pretty normal upbringing until her mother passed well, away. Like what we were talking about earlier. I mean, about certain people. Right. <laughs> I mean, it does. sometimes it doesn't matter how you're brought up. Brought up. Sometimes there's always that one that just becomes the wackadoodle. Right. The one that's just not <laughs> Starts right. Starts the trend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so independent accounts from family members suggest strongly that Betty had attempted to kill Mary and make her death look... Okay, I already read that, didn't I? Her family was suspicious when Mary fell from a window and when she accidentally, quotes, quote fingers, consumed sleeping pills. On one such occasion, an independent witness saw Betty giving the pills to her daughter as sweets. What? So yeah, she was like actively hearts. trying to kill this girl. Okay. Gosh. So okay, yeah, she she she's fucked up and probably for I good feel reason. Sorry for. Mary herself says she was subject to repeated sexual abuse because her mom was a prostitute, and I basically right. she basically used her as a prop. Ah. Yeah. Her mother forcing her to engage in sex acts with men from the age of five. What? Ugh. So that's a little background on on little Mary Bell. You picked a twisted one. Yeah, very twisted. And you see the pictures of this girl? She has, like, she's a beautiful little girl. She has these beautiful piercing blue eyes and, like, a heavy fringe of black eyelashes. Oh. Like, she's pretty, but a lot of people said that when she fixed those eyes on you, you it was, it like, gave you the chills. Like, you just want to just step back. Especially kids that she went to school with. What? Yeah. Yeah, that would be freak. There are some people, like, they could either, like, it looks like they're just, like, looking through your soul. Right. And then there's others where you're just creeped out, but you're, you're like, mm-mm. Those are, like, bad guy eyes. Right. 
<laughs> like Uncle, Uncle John. John. Lizzie's uncle. Yeah. You're going to have to show me a picture yeah. of that guy. He's got bad guy eyes. Um, Belle grew up in Scottswood, in the Scottswood area of Newcastle, an economically depressed area where domestic violence and criminal behavior was commonplace. As a result, her previous crimes, including attacks on other children at school, vandalism, and theft did not attract undue attention. I mean, this is like in her short little life, yeah. she had already gained this reputation. I mean, she's so all the way up until the age of 11. So as oh. a result, her, okay. Also, she had developed a reputation as a show-off. So her proclamation, I am a murderer, oh was dismissed as just another of her idle boasts. So at 11? At 11. She's boasting, I'm a murderer. Right. She was probably hungry for any kind of attention, too. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, people made fun of her. Like, she just had a kind of a lonely life. But I don't know how that affected her because it sounds like she wasn't really affected by things. (laughs) Well. Well, maybe early on, but. She had to build her own she built a defense right so maybe saying i'm a murderer she made people like if you're gonna be freaked out by me i'm gonna make you legit freaked out by me right i'm gonna live it it's like they say if you tell a child that they're naughty so many times they're gonna be like well fuck it i'm gonna be naughty because that's the only time I get attention anyway is when you're telling me I'm naughty. And I got to live up to my reputation. So she got told so many bad things about herself that finally she was like, fuck it. I'm a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, bah, 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 bah. Her cruel urges surfaced on May 11th, 1968, when Mary and Norma Bell no relation, were playing with a three-year-old boy on top of a Newcastle air raid shelter. The boy fell and was severely injured, but the incident was written off as accidental. On May 12th, the mothers of three young girls informed police that Mary had attacked and choked their children. She was interviewed and lectured. This is, this all happens within one year. So how old is she in this? Are we Um, talking like still 11? So at this point, she's probably, she's at She's at the end of being 10 on the cusp of being 11 Um, because her birthday happens just maybe a day after she kills her first victim. On May 12th, okay, she was interviewed and lectured by authorities, but no juvenile charges were filed. On May 25th, two boys playing in an old abandoned house found the corpse of four-year-old Martin Brown. (gasps) Four. (sighs) Baby. So sad. Lying in an upstairs room, Mary and Norma Bell had followed the boys inside and had to be ordered out when police arrived. With no obvious cause of death, it was assumed that Martin Brown had swallowed pills from a discarded bottle found nearby. So the way I made it, they made it sound because of the neighborhood that they were in, that people, everybody kind of like watched after everybody's kids or whatever. Right. And these kids just kind of just entertain themselves. So everybody's kids were kind of watching everybody else's kids, but four. I don't know. Mary was believed to have committed this crime alone. On May 26, Norma Bell's father, Norma, the the little girl that plays with her and apparently helps her commit the second murder, caught Mary choking his 11-year-old daughter. He slapped her face and sent her home. Later that day, well, back then, you could slap other kids. Yeah, but that's all? Yeah. (laughs) You're choking my kid? Slap, slap, go home. 
that like grabbed her by her freaking cuffs and take, <laughs> dragged her all the way home. And but it oh, probably yeah. it sounds like it would have landed on deaf ears. Yeah. Later that day, a local nursery school was vandalized. Police discovered notes that read. That sounded dramatic. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't delete a paragraph. One said, "I murder so that I may come back." Oh. Another one, and they they wrote these pretty much the way they spelled them. Fuck is spelled um, F U C H. <laughs> of just like a ten or eleven year old. And then off is spelled O O F. So it's like fuck off. We murder. Watch out. And Fanny and faggot. Oh. And then another t- note says, "We did murder." Martin Brown, fuck off, you bastard. (laughs) And then another one, you are micey, because we murdered Martin. I'm just reading it the way they wrote it. Martin Brown, you better look out there. Our murders by Fanny and old faggot, you screws. Like, the notes don't make any sense. It yeah, sounds but like if they're, they're written by a 10 or 11 year old, yeah. they're not going to make right. sense. And and I'll, I'm probably going to post pictures on Instagram of the actual notes. You yeah. see like the writing looks like... Like a little kid. Like a little kid. Yeah. All right. Police took the notes back to the station and filed them away as a sick joke. Uh-huh. Mary would later admit they wrote the notes for a giggle because this wasn't the first break-in at the nursery. The school installed an alarm system. Um, That same morning, Mary Bell drew a picture in her notebook of a child in the same pose as that in which Martin Brown had been found with a bottle near him with the word tablet, and I'll probably post that picture as well. There was a man walking toward the child. It read, On Saturday, I was in the house, and my ma'am sent me to ask Norma if she would come up to the top with me. We went up, and we came down at Margaret's Road, and there were crowds of people beside an old house. I asked what was the matter. There had been a boy who just lay down and died. Mary's notebook entry did not strike the teacher as odd, although she was the only student who wrote on Martin's death. Okay. No, that's not. That's, oh, that's perfectly normal here. I'm sure you all appreciate my British accent. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have these. It won't two be women. the first time. It won't be the last time. <laughs> I had these two clients. One's from the Nether- Netherlands. The other one was Scotland. And of course, the first thing I have to do is <laughs> mimic. <laughs> oh, hello! Welcome to my. <laughs> you like a spot of tea. <laughs> Outlander. <laughs> do you watch Outlander? I love it. Are you serious? I love it. When, when I, I saw, saw you do what you did, I was like, yeah. I love Outlander. I love it. All right. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that. All right. Okay. Where were we? Okay. So the police take the notes back to the station. They just write it off as a sick joke. And then four days later, Mary Bell appeared at the Brown residence asking his mother the little boy's mother, June Brown, to see Martin. Reminded of the tragedy, she told his grieving mother, Oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. Oh, that. Oh, I got chills. Right. What a little bitch. And she was still grinning. I was still speechless that such a young child should want to see a dead baby. I just slammed the door on her. Oh. And that wasn't the only people that she visited, her and Norma. Her and Norma just sound like... Norma it, must have gotten hit in the frontal lobe Well, and it, so, like, I was watching a few documentaries, like, at work. I was watching, half-listening, whatever. And 
they make Norma sound like she's just the village idiot. Like, so Mary was... The mind. She was the mind of everything. The brains. And, yeah, and Norma just followed her and did whatever she Why did. Why do they do that? Yeah. My kids are taught, like, if you do something with somebody, I'm not going to blame them for your action. You chose to go along with it. Yeah. You're responsible, too. But every single one of them, I, I, I almost felt, like, empathy for Norma because every person that talked about her... Like was like she was an idiot. She was right. uh, she's she was the village slow. idiot. She was yeah. I was like okay, well, she was dim witted. Like uh-huh. they were. It was like yeah. Okay, I'm gonna leave it at that. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah. So Mary and Norma were also giving Martin's aunt the creeps. His aunt, not his mother, with their prying questions. They kept asking me, "Do you miss Martin? Do you cry for him? And does June miss him? June being the mom." And they were always grinning. In the end, I could stand it no more and told them to get out and not to come back. This is just like, they, they're going back and they're just like trying Being to... Being little assholes. Yeah. So on May 31st, a newly installed burglar alarm at the vandalized nursery school brought, brought patrolmen rushing back to the scene where they found Mary and Norma Bell loitering beside the building. Both girls fervently denied involvement in the previous break-in, and they were released to the custody of their parents. So, like, all these things are boom, boom, boom happening. And each time, shoo, go go away. On July 31st, two months elapsed, and and before the disappearance of three-year-old Brian... Okay. As before, the disappearance of three-year-old Brian Howe in Newcastle, an immediate search was mounted, and Mary Bell told Brian's sister that he might be playing on a heap of concrete blocks. Oh, oh my God. That had been dumped out (laughs) on a nearby vacant lot, and she's still alive. In fact, he was discovered there among the tumbled, tumbled slabs, but he was dead. A victim, so... Exactly where they told she told them to go. That's where they found him. A victim of manual strangulation. Legs and stomach had been mutilated with a razor and a pair what? of scissors. That wasn't even it. His his little no. his little man <gasps> baby parts. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. With a pair of scissors. That, and I didn't even put that in here, but I said no. it anyways. Uh, that police recovered at the scene. Yeah. You said she's still alive. I'll, yeah, I'll tell you the whole circumstances uh-uh. of that. Um, they even cut off a piece of his hair. Yeah. It's like she was, she got into like cult-like stuff as she got older. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, well, I'll tell you right now. It says a medical examiner suggested that the killer might have been a child. Since relatively little force was used, detectives started circulating questionnaires among the local children, asking suspects to account for their movements at the time of Brian's death. Answers from Mary and Norma Bell were inconsistent, and both girls were brought in for questioning. While Mary claimed that she had seen an older boy abusing Brian, Norma soon broke down and told of watching Mary kill the boy. At trial in December 1968, Norma was acquitted of all charges, while Mary Bell was convicted on two counts of manslaughter. Investigators now looked at the mysterious death of Martin Brown as a homicide. In fact, Mary Bell's behavior after Martin's death was so flagrant, it was a wonder she hadn't been apprehended sooner. Like, yeah, all the stuff that she... Yeah, they saved a kid's life. Yeah. So they go back and they look at this other, the little boy, the other little boy that died. Perhaps Brian Howe's life would have been spared. But as one local boy said, everyone knew Mary was a show-off and her screams, I am a murderer, had simply been laughed at. 
Even before Martin's death, other children were being hurt by Mary. Um, and this is kind of a repeat of what I said before. On May 11th, a three-year-old boy was found behind some empty sheds near a pub, bleeding from, he- from the head. He was found by Norma Bell and Mary Bell. The boy was a cousin of Mary's. He had fallen off a ledge, landing several feet below. Mary would later admit to having pushed him over the edge. So I think that was that one that we were talking about before. And then the following day, three girls who were playing, but this just kind of like um, expounds on that, Mm -hmm. um, were playing by the nursery, were attacked by Mary with Norma nearby. One of the girls said that Mary put her hands around her neck and squeezed hard. The girl... Mary took her hands off my neck and she did the same to Susan. The police were soon called. Norma stated that Mary went to the other girl and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple and then ran off and left Mary. The girl started to go purple. I then ran off and left Mary. I'm not friends with her anymore. (laughs) Think. (laughs) According to the official report on May 15th, the girl's Bell, yes, that's plural, have been warned as to their future conduct. Ten days later, Martin Brown was killed. So then comes the trial. Mary Bell and Norma Bell were brought to trial for the murder of Martin Brown and Brian Howe at the Newcastle Assizes Moot Hall. Okay. On December 5th, 1968. The trial would last nine days. Only nine days. Yeah. The media, I mean, compared to stuff that happens now. Yeah. Um, the media attention. Uh, well, actually, hold on, because I don't even know if now a kid that young would get a trial like trial. that. <laughs> yeah, no. They'd be like, should we? I mean, they're just a kid. Should Psycho- we do it as an adult, or should we just give them probation? <laughs> yeah, they definitely think about it now. I'm just saying. Uh, the media attention, although mild by today's sensationalist standards, was generating increasing interest as the trial progressed. By the final day, the press was everywhere, despite attempts to make the court dun, 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 proceedings less threatening to the children. Oh, <laughs> yes, let's make them. <laughs> let's be gentle on the little murdering brats. Both Norma and Mary were bewildered. Mary appeared to be attentive but later admitted the whole thing was a blur. Prosecutor Rudolph Lyons opened the trial by suggesting that whoever murdered Brian Howe also killed Martin Brown. Lyons methodically recounted the suspicious behavior of both girls at the scene of Martin's death, how they plagued the mourning family with their morbid questions, and how they vandalized the nursery the next day, leaving notes that amounted to a confession. For Norma, these notes were the most damaging to her innocence. Handwriting analysis had verified that Norma had written the I murder so that I may come back note. If Norma was truly innocent, why would she participate in these dreadful scribblings? Which is like she was being led. She was easily manipulated by this girl, but at the same time, you have to be responsible. I mean, she's just sick. Yeah. Um, and then he said, he brought up, how did Mary know that Martin had been asphyxiated? Um, this was not public knowledge, yet the de- yet she demonstrated to the house how Martin was strangled. Forensic evidence also implicated Mary. Gray, gray fibers from one of her wool dresses were sc- discovered on the bodies of both victims. Mm-hmm. Fibers from Norma's maroon skirt were found on Brian's shoes. Although there were doubts that Norm- about Norma's guilt, Mary was considered guilty by most. According to Gita Sereni, who was at the trial, the issue at stake was whether Mary was 
was a sick little girl or a monster a bad seed both sounds like it all the above um a victim of her environment well that circumstances 100% Mary's family presence at the trial didn't help her case her mother Betty Bell disrupted the proceedings with all her wailing and sobbing and because of course it's about her right and a lot of what I've read too was also that she might have had Munchausen's by proxy like she would like some of the things were they said that like attempted murder or whatever like she'd be like oh my daughter you know was sick and whatever like they thought it was it was an attempt by her to get attention of course I could see that even one time she said that her daughter got uh, run over by horses or like a carriage or something uh, and then her daughter I guess she had given them to somebody else at that point and then her daughter pops back up she is a fucked up yeah. woman yeah um let's see oh what you're welcome it? for all the f-bombs I've dropped today <laughs> you're not the only one um, Betty Bell disrupted the proceedings with all her wailing and sobbing, her long blonde wig slipping off her head. Like a poorly played character in a lurid soap opera, she stormed out during the trial, only to dramatically reappear moments later. Her father, Billy Bell, sat quietly ignoring his wife's spectacles. Wow. Oh. Mm. And from accounts of him, he sounds like he was a very, like big intimidating guy like a scary guy i'm surprised he's still he was still with her yeah i don't even know if he was with her at that point but mary who serenity described as a very pretty and intelligent with dark hair and sharp blue eyes which in anger looked emotionally blank observers in the courtroom wrote serenity were watching her with a horrified kind of curiosity for such a manipulative and cunning little girl, Mary knew nothing about attracting sympathy. Mm-hmm. At one point, Mary told a police officer how a woman up in the gallery smiles at me, but I don't smile back. It isn't a smiling matter. The jury wouldn't like it if I smiled, would they? Oh my God. She's a lot of the, I didn't write everything, but she sounds like she's very, like, very, very intelligent. Yeah. Um, Norma, on the other hand, was surrounded by a much more sympathetic family. She was the third of 11 children and reacted to evidence and testimony with more childlike combination of fear and nervous tears. Mm -hmm. Mary disdained crying as a sign of weakness. Wow. Norma was the first to take the stand. Her defense lawyer, R.P. Smith, asked her about the day Martin Brown was murdered, how Mary poked her head through the fence. The girls were next door neighbors and said, there's been an accident and took her over to the abandoned house where Martin's body had just been discovered. So Mary did the first one all by herself. by herself. Mary wanted to tell Rita there had been an accident and somebody, uh, and something about blood all over something, said Norma excitedly. For the prosecution, Norma was an important witness to Mary's violent disposition. Did Mary ever show you how little boys or girls could be killed? Did she ever show you that? When Norma answered yes, Lyons responded, Well, that was a very naughty thing to do, wasn't it? To think of killing little boys and girls and talk about it. Norma agreed. On December 17, 1968, at Newcastle Assizes, Norma Bell was acquitted, but Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The jury took their lead from her from her diagnosis by court. So, okay, instead of convicting her of murder, they gave her manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility basically because they said she was crazy right um 
The jury taking their lead from her diagnosis by court appointed psychiatrists who described her as playing classic symptoms of psychopathy. I actually said that word. Good for you. (laughs) Way better than I. The last time I could, I was like, I had to say that like 10 times. All right. The judge, Mr. Justice Kursak, described her as dangerous and said she posed a very grave risk to other children. You think? Yeah. She was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, effectively an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. She was initially sent to Red Bank Secure Unit at St. Helens, Lancashire, the same facility that would house John Venables, one of James Bulger's child killers, 25 years later. I guess we're going to have to look into that story. Yeah. After her conviction, Bell was... the focus of a great deal of attention from the British press and also from the German Stern magazine. Her mother repeatedly sold stories about her to the press. Of course she did. No, she's, she's still she prostituting her daughter. Bell herself made the headlines when in September 1977 she briefly absconded from more she escaped from more court open prison where she had been held since her transfer from young offenders institution to an adult prison a year earlier. Her penalty for this was a loss of prison privileges for 28 oh, days. Oh, for God's sakes. So, slap on the wrist. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. For a time, Belle also lived in a girls' remand home at Cumberlow Lodge in South Norwood. I'm surprised that they put her with other people, period. I'm right. surprised they weren't like solitary confinement, because how can you trust her around anybody? I don't even know. And then what happens after that? 1980, Belle, age 23, was released from Ascom Grange Open Prison, having served 12 years. She was granted anonymity, including a new name to start a new life with her daughter. What? Her daughter. What? Who was born on 25th of May, 1984. Wait, how did that happen? Well, oh, a guard? Well, no, because she was released oh. in 1980, so this is four years later. Oh, oh, oh. Um, Bell's daughter did not know of her mother's past until Bell's location was discovered by reporters, and she and her mother had to leave their house with bedsheets over their heads. <laughs> Bell's daughter's anonymity was originally protected only until she reached the age of 18. However, on May 21, 2003, Bell won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. What? Any court order permanently protecting the identity of someone is consequently known as the Mary Bell order. What? Yep. Oh, I got chills, man. She's still around. In 2009, well, think about it. In 1968, she was only 10, 11. Yeah. In 2009, it was reported that Bell had become a grandmother. So she's, she's lived a long, happy life. After killing, taking people's children from them. So that was my story. I'm so used to us doing 1800s. Right. I know I was looking for something, but then I... Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. Well, I saw her, like, I was, like, scrolling through the different stories and whatever, and just her eyes just captured me. I was like, okay, what's this about? Can you imagine being her child and having to learn all that? Sounds like a horrible thing to find out about. And apparently she wrote a book. Go give Grandma Murder a hug. Yeah. She wrote a book. Oh, good. So now she's making a whole bunch of money? Well, I guess there was some law that got passed after that because people were not happy about the, her collecting money funds from, yeah. 
not getting rich off of kids deaths so um some lady like actually did a like interviewed her and whatever and she was not completely convinced that she was cured right but she thinks she said that she had like a determination of will that kept her kept those inclinations at bay because it was more important for her daughter to have a regular life so that's interesting very well we'll think positive and hope that she just i don't know how you could know that and then be like go see grandma i know i know know. it's crazy anyways we kind of ran long tonight we'll see what comes out in the editing process what is shorty doing she's freaking out she's like i'm dead (laughs) now she's looking at me like what 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 yes I see you. Oh, now she's all ashamed. What? Okay, I, I was got just caught. sitting here. Oh, she's. <laughs> oh, you're gonna talk to me. You're gonna yeah, pet come me. Here. That was good. Long ones. Two interesting stories. Two were about, good. Um, interesting. <laughs> two true crime and a little ghost. A little ghost story. Yeah. Two uh, demented children. Yeah. Lizzie was only twenty. Oh, okay. Two. Well, she was pretty young. Yeah. I think that's how old she was when all that happened. Alrighty, girl. All right, I'm going to bed now. Did your husband make the bed for me, the couch? (laughs) (laughs) We can. No, I'm pretty sure there's probably a lot of people at my house right now. Is there really? Oh, all the kids? Yeah, Yeah, Aiden came home. Allie's home. Ah. All their friends. You have a weekend with the kids. Yeah, I love it when they're home, but... uh, They bring everybody else with them. I know, I just want my house to be halfway decent. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, that's our show for tonight. Uh, Thank you for listening. Um, And like I said, if you want to hit us up on our new email address, tipsytalespodcasts at yahoo.com or our Instagram, um, tipsytalespodcast.com. Our Facebook Tipsy Tales podcast, or we also have a website tip- tipsy tales.com. All right, there you go. <laughs> oh, do you, do you want me to do mine? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can be reached at email Carlene, C A R L E N E dot spirit at yahoo.com, and my Facebook is psychic medium Carlene Higgins. That's it. That's the show. Thank you guys for listening. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Tipsy Tales. Music by Jesse Pesqueda. Artwork by Sergio Hernandez. And if you're listening on iTunes, please don't forget to rate and review. Thanks.